Welcome to the Duet Partner Podcast. Assets include things that are replicable and not bound by time. And the more that you can create these and use these, it, it frees you up for other work. Garrett Hope has made several pivots in his life as a musician, from composer to performer to teacher to consultant. And now he's helping others to do the same. In everything he does, though, Garrett believes that musicians should do more than just trade time for money. Musicians should craft businesses around their endeavors that efficiently repurpose their artistic output and properly reward them for their value. In our conversation, Garrett offers philosophical convictions for this attitude, as well as practical tips on how to achieve the vision he promotes. My mom was an elementary school music teacher and our church choir director and music minister. And so I like to joke that as soon as I could stand and open my mouth and make sounds, I've been on stages singing. Uh, with my mom, we, my siblings and I just didn't get a choice. <laughs> yeah. I think I'm that kind of mom myself these days, yes. It's a good way to be as a mom, I think. And now uh, my daughter's now 14, and oh my gosh, the resistance that we get. But when <laughs> she was very little, it was easier. Yeah. Uh, that being said, so I've been in music my whole life. And then when I was very young, my parents tried Suzuki violin, and that was a terrible fit for me for some reason. But my aunt, who's also a professional musician, taught piano. And so I think I was maybe four or five when I started studying piano with my aunt. So she's the one who really taught me how to read the clefs and understand the very fundamentals of music theory and gave me my foundational skills. So I got to credit Aunt Cheryl in a big way. And then when it came time to cho choose an instrument for band, I wanted to play saxophone. And now I'm going to throw my mom under the bus a little bit. <laughs> because she studied clarinet when she was at university and we had one in the house. And my mom was like, you're going to play a real orchestral instrument. So I played clarinet and it was fine. Studied that, played it all the way through university actually. Wow. But when I was in middle school, so by the time I'm like sixth, seventh grade, our church got a new worship director who had a degree in guitar from USC and really cool guy. And I started studying guitar lessons with him. And it, it was that, I don't know if you've read the Harry Potter books, but in the first book, Harry <laughs> goes to Diagon Alley yes. and he walks into Ollivander's shop. And it's one of the best scenes in the entire book. Cause there, you imagine like boxes everywhere and packing paper until that one wand. Right. And it's this, mo and that's how I felt when I held a guitar. It's like, Oh, and now I the have wand a major chose you, problem. right? It, right. It, you, you, there was this sense of this is the thing for me. And my wife says I have a guitar problem now. I am up to like 26 guitars. Wow. <laughs> and my pandemic hobby has been luthery. So now I'm making them. Awesome. It just gets worse. Anyway, I so I studied guitar while I was playing clarinet through uh, school, started university as a guitar major, switched to bass and graduated as a bass major. But I was still performing on clarinet and guitar all the time. So that is the nutshell version of how I came into music as a child. Wow, what a varied skill set. I love it. You've got the, the the standard orchestral instrument for your mom. You've got the guitar for for yourself, your your own self-fulfillment uh, and pleasure. And now you've got the mm -hmm. piano to bring it all together. I love that. So, so what have you pursued professionally? I mean, what did you decide in college to, to sort of hone in on? Oh man, that's a really good question. I don't think anyone's asked me that specific question ever. 
So thank you. You know, it's interesting. I started, as I said, as a guitar major. And um, what I was seeing as I looked around is that there were a lot of really good guitar players. And there weren't a lot of really good bass players at the time. And I just switched to bass. And I instantly started getting more and more gigs. Mm. It's like the difference between violin and viola. It yep. is so hard <laughs> to stand out as a vi violinist. But if you're a good violist, you will always be called. Yep. And that's what happened once I switched to bass. It's like, okay, now I'm playing all the time. And I, I was studying upright, uh, classical and jazz and electric and everything. So that first decision to kind of get to your question while I was in university, even though I didn't know it at the time, was really a business decision. I was looking at the market and competition and where can I take my skill set and um, be fruitful. Uh, but it was my last year of university at undergrad. I took composition as an elective and I wrote a choir piece that then won a huge award. And I thought, oh my goodness, writing music is awesome and it's easy apparently. Well, it's not. <laughs> so you but just that, had the one class and you had this yeah. instant reward from the one composition class. Right. Yeah. It was a very auspicious beginning. Or, or yes. I was just fortuitous. Yeah. So I decided to pursue a graduate degree in composition. And while this was at the University of Northern Colorado in Greeley. And while I was there as a master's student, uh, the supervising professor saw that I had some pr decent communication skills. And so they actually bypassed the current doctoral students and gave me the one teaching assistantship. So instantly in one year, I was given full control of a music theory and an ear training classroom, two classes, and I had had zero pedagogical training, nothing. Yeah. And it also happens that I was uh, recommended by a friend to start teaching at this local community college in. Fort Collins. So without really any kind of career planning or foresight or intention on my part, I was instantly teaching like six credit hours all at once uh, with no experience. And I had actually been purposely trying to avoid being a teacher. Why my is mom, that? Well, oh. my mom was a teacher and I'm like, I don't want to be like my mom. And, and I had been teaching guitar lessons since I was 16. Uh, and it, it was fine. It was a really, it was rewarding and it was an easy way to make money. But in my mind, for some reason, I just had chosen to, I didn't want to do that, but I, there were other designs on my life because as I started teaching more and I picked up more students and built a teaching studio at the same time I'm teaching adjunct, I realized I kind of liked it and I think I'm pretty good at it. And I'm pretty gifted in it. <laughs> and so, again, another another change. So then after I'd finished my master's, I was adjuncting at three different places. And there were some times where I would be driving 50 miles to each job because I would teach in Greeley or Fort Collins or in the Denver area and just this huge triangle. And so I decided I needed to get the doctorate, which is the minimum requirement for full-time teaching and so am I, am I getting to the heart of your question? I, I yeah, hope I'm not yeah, no, I just, I love, yeah. I love seeing this decision tree as you progress. And it mm -hmm. is interesting that, you know, that I don't hear that part of the story often where people make these kinds of decisions based on their marketability, really, 
really. And and you did. You like you said, you were looking at the market. You were seeing where somebody with your skills get set would be needed, while still balancing your personal passion and your own, you know, your own personal skill set. So I, that's a, that's a really interesting calculus that you did throughout this whole time. Well, I I guess some of it was intuitive, uh, but yeah, it, in some ways it's it's paid off. I guess <laughs> seems to yes. But in the end, what was revealed to me is that as much as I love music and I'm passionate about music and I've made it my life, I'm also not going to be the person who's going to win any major orchestral audition. Mm -hmm. I am a teacher. I am a mentor and a coach. Um, and I do perform regularly. I, I, one of the things I do right now is I'm director of worship at a small congregation where I live in Nebraska. So Almost every day I'm using these skills, but I'm, I'm not going to, you know, no one's going to come see a concert of me playing. Let's just say that. But that's, that's the bread and butter of the musician, mm -hmm. the music industry, right? It's people like you. I mean, there's only such a very small little tippy top number that can reach that, that very pinnacle. And we're great. We're glad, grateful they're there. That's wonderful. But the real joy of music is in, in, you know, being able to just create those relationships on a one-on-one -on -one level that those elite performers can't do. And you're doing that Absolutely. and you're obviously extremely gifted at it. Well, I don't know about that. But <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I do. I'm, from observing you and the response oh, to well. uh, to your your yeah your your all the materials that you put out and your all your efforts for the community, they're they're well well regarded. Oh, that means so much. Thanks. You know, I, this is something that I talk a lot about because I, I work right now. Oh, let me step back and let your audience know that my primary training is in composition. So I still write a lot of music. In fact, I'm all jazzed up today because I'm writing this new piece for concert band and I primarily write for educational ensembles. So I do a lot of that. Wonderful. But when I'm not composing or leading worship, I do coaching and training and helping other musicians build their businesses. That's a real passion to mine, of mine. And uh, I, we can get into the story at some point of how that happened. But what I talk a lot about, and this is what I'm doing with Dr. Heidi K. Begay as well, is helping musicians assess their skill set. Their talent stack is the framing we're using mm -hmm. and pivoting. And so many musicians reach some sort of wall in their career where they're building their teaching studio and they just get so frustrated and they give up and they walk away and they literally switch careers. And I don't think you have to. I think if you really understand who you are and what you do and how you can come to the market, it's about finding ways to solve your audience's problems, helping them achieve their dreams. And you do this as a music teacher too. And then you just focus on that. And that's what I did, right? As I'm telling this story is I was making these realizations along the way. It's only after the fact I can look at it and say, oh, right. That's why this worked. And, um, I realize I'm not a performer, but I still perform. I still have that talent set. But what I'm really doing is using my areas of mentorship, teaching, and communication within the world of music. So I'm still a professional musician, right? Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. and so so tell me, so keep keep going down your decision path. So you decide to get a doctorate. Was there a time when you really felt like you needed to 
to to take that risk of turning back to the community and saying, you know, here I am offering myself as a coach, as a business leader. What what was that sort of pivot like in in your own world? Yeah. Um, so what had happened is after I finished the doctorate, I was teaching full time at a small liberal arts college outside of Philadelphia. And that was a visiting assistant position. Long story short, I ended up leaving that position and my wife and I returned to Nebraska. And when we made that decision, we also had to come to grips with what it's going to be like for me applying for other university jobs. When you are applying for academic positions, you really have to be willing to move anywhere. And we just weren't. We had a young child and it's been really hard on my wife all the moving we'd been doing. So we just decided we're going to stay. So I walked away from academia. And while I was doing that, while I was making that pivot, I began asking myself some hard questions because I called myself a composer, but I was paying the bills by teaching. Now that's a tried and true way for composers to make a living. But I wanted to figure out how can I do that by writing music? And that's when I realized I have to treat what I do as a business owner, I am running the business of Garrett Hope Music. And so who am I serving and how am I serving them? And, I, and all the other skills that came along with that, learning marketing, copywriting, uh, advertising, um, getting better at my accounting skills, all of these types of things. So I'm making this transition and while I'm working on building the composition side, I learn how to tune pianos and I start a piano tuning business that went really well. I've since closed that, um, but it was a way to make money and I learned a lot about yeah. all the things about running a business. Yeah. So I'm getting to your question. I'm sorry <laughs> if I, I feel like I'm just spinning off everywhere. When I was making these pivots, and realizing I'm not going to be pursuing academic jobs anymore, I also knew that my skill set was in teaching. And as I'm learning these parts of how to be successful as a musician in the 21st century, I wanted to share that. So I started my podcast, The Portfolio mm -hmm. Composer. And I was thinking at the time, though I didn't know it was called a pivot, is how can I use what I use in the classroom outside of the classroom? How can I do everything that I would do for an employer, but for myself? And that's when I started coaching. So this was about five or six years ago. And slowly I've gotten more and more training in being a coach and helping other people make those steps too and build their businesses. And a lot of business building, as you know, is mindset, uh, fear and anxiety. And there's a real scarcity mindset around money with musicians and I'm on a mission to battle that. Tell, tell me a little bit more about what you mean by that. How do you define your, that scarcity mentality? Okay. Well, a lot of, there's the uh, kind of a common understanding that comes out of the romantic period. And I'm going to blame Goethe for this, but <laughs> we can blame Goethe any day for anything. That's sure. great. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> that to be a successful artist, to a real artist starves, right? that art is made out of the struggle. And in the 19th century, art was actually created. There's stories and poems and paintings and music and mythologies we've put around some of our com favorite composers about how they were poor. 
And the reality is, is sometimes they were just bad money managers. I mean, Mozart made a lot of money. He just spent it all. Yep. And Beethoven as well. He organized his own concerts. He published his music. He was a businessman. Berlioz had to figure out how to put festivals together and fund these enormous orchestras. These are all business people. But we're somehow believing into this lie, this mythology that music is supposed to be disassociated from money and that to be a real musician or to make anything meaningful requires being poor. And that's just absolutely not true. And a lot of that comes from a misunderstanding of uh, scripture where uh, it says the love of money is the root of all evil. And we've cut out the love part, right? So we want to just say money is the root of all evil. And we blame these evil rich people. Well, no. <laughs> and you want to have a roof over your head. You want to buy insurance. You want to have food in your fridge. You want to be able to provide for your children. Well, that requires money. And I think if you find a way to serve your audience well, whether that's students, whether that's people who come to concerts, whether it's people who buy recordings or buy your scores or commission you, whatever, you can make money. And there's no shame in that for one. And we need to do a better job of valuing our skills and our talents and pricing ourselves accordingly in the market. And I'm constantly telling my music teacher friends, raise your rates, raise your rates. You'd be so surprised. Right now, I'm charging $60 a half hour for lessons in Lincoln, Nebraska. Wow. Right? So, and then you can scale that with group lessons and right. online lessons and on and on and on. And what does that do for the value of your studio? How, what, what response have you seen to that? Well, when you hold your value, when you stop believing the lie about scarcity Instead, focus on, on abundance and you know that you're bringing a unique skill set to the marketplace. When you hold that and you raise your rates, a few things happen. The first is you get better clients. For the listeners, I'm sure you've all experienced this. The, the problem with free or cheap is that the people who want free or cheap are the ones who complain the most. And it's just really frustrating. How many of you have dealt with a parent who just doesn't pay on time or wants to, you know, nickel and dime you for every discount or, well, you didn't charge Billy's family as much as you're charging me. And you end up attracting a higher quality group of people to what you're offering when you raise your rates. Secondly, it allows you to spend your time differently because we only have so many time, so much time in the day. And a lot of us are in self-employment mode, which means we're still trading time for money. And when you begin to see your value, you can begin trading your time for assets, which is what a real business owner does. And for music teachers, that might be a hard thing to wrap your head around. It it's usually takes a lot of coaching and helping them, but it's possible. And this is something I learned from Robert Kiyosaki's Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Are you familiar with that book? I am. I, I've never read it, but I know I know what you're referring to. Yeah. So his, his big thing is the rich teach their children to work for assets. And he defines an asset as something that puts money in your pocket, as opposed to a liability, which takes money out of your pocket. 
And so if we are working for assets, what does that mean? It means we're creating things that are replicable and not bound by time. So courses, books, recordings, scores, or scaling your time with group lessons and other things rather than just always one-to-one. And that way you can actually be making money without having to work. So right now I have my music available on JW Pepper and other places. And then I get a sales report. (laughs) I'm not actually having to sit there and do it, right? right? To sell it hand to hand. And now I can up the sales by doing a lot of marketing and things, but that's that's a different part of the conversation. Does this make sense? Am I explaining this? Absolutely. Yeah. So you're talking about the scalability of how a musician uses his or her time to, to, to disseminate their work in ways that reach more than just that one, one to one. Do you see an opportunity or what, what's your answer to the idea that, that music and music lessons should be available broadly? Do you see um, music lessons sort of veering into that um, that danger zone of becoming sort of an elite pastime for those that can can afford it? Or do you think that there's a place in the market for those that are serving those that don't can't pay, you know, $60 for 30 minutes? Um, I think we are instructed, commanded to take care of the people in our community who need help. In the Old Testament, the Israelites were instructed not to harvest all the way to the edge of the fields. The idea is to provide opportunity for the needy in their community to come and gather food for themselves. This tells me a couple of things when we apply it to what we're doing as music teachers, as educators. The first is that we should not be striving to wring every last dollar out of the people we're serving. That's not healthy for our communities. It's not healthy for our businesses. It's not, I think, best practice. And we should also keep room within our businesses for those who need help. I used to own a piano tuning company, and I would give away a certain amount of free tunings to people within the community who needed it. And this was done through the local music teachers association. And so they would have clients and they would reach out to me and they would say, well, one of our teachers has a student who can't afford a tuning. Would you go tune their piano? And of course the answer was yes. So here is where I think you should consider thinking about your business as you teach music, raise your rates, do the best job you can do to serve the people that you have been called to serve and to teach them to the highest ability you can. And by raising your rates, you will deal less with price negotiations and haggling and um, the people who are just price shopping. And instead, you're going to get the people who really want what you can offer. At the same time, keep room within your studio for some people who couldn't be there without that help. Whether that means reserving maybe 10% to giving a tithing example, if we're going to keep this within a biblical framework, 10% of your space within your studio for clients who need the help. And that could be free or significantly reduced lessons. Keep in mind that when God was instructing the Israelites to not harvest all the way to the edges of the field, this was not necessarily a free handout. 
It was taking care of the poor, the widows, and the needy within the community. But they had to go out and do the work too. And so I'm not in advocating at all for incentivizing people not putting in the effort because we want our students to know the value of what we're giving. But you can still make room in your studio for the opportunities for them to get the quality music education that only you can provide. So that's where I'm at with that. I firmly do believe that we need to provide opportunities for those who are needy, who are struggling. At the same time, we need to be thinking mindfully about our businesses and making sure that we're charging rates that reflect our worth to the community, to our students, and to the expertise that we bring in to our businesses. I really appreciate that idea that you know, as a teacher, it's probably healthy and um, advisable to have a sort of diversity of activities too, and a diversity of clientele, right? It keeps you humble. It keeps your skills sharp. It keeps your toolkit more varied, right? Um, to be able, but, but as you say, you know, you have to look at out for yourself first and foremost as a business person, and there's got to be a balance there. We did a, a conversation a couple of weeks ago, an earlier podcast episode with a woman who's actually overseeing a Suzuki a violin program in a school district in Texas. And she has oh, really? hundreds of uh, low-income children who come through her program that's sponsored by the school district. And she teaches them all a 30-minute private lesson each week. And the parents are actually required to be there as part of the school program, which is wild. Wow. Yeah. And she said that in her um, middle school I think she oversees maybe two or three schools and among those schools, they've got six different orchestras. It's just an incredible program. Um, so I don't know, that's kind of maybe a model along the lines of what, of what yeah. you're talking about, but and you reminded me of something else that I think is a, is a way to fund this. Cause if we're, if we really care about making this kind of education accessible, then there's ways that you can, uh, make your living without asking it from the parents. So why not get sponsored by the music store, right? Or uh, some somebody else. Like there, there are businesses who want to come alongside and help and do this. Maybe your local bank wants to give back to their community and they can fund X amount of lessons by basically covering the cost for you or subsidizing the cost for these families. So there's lots of ways for you to get your full rate without forcing the low income families to pay it. So you yeah. said sponsored by the school, which is awesome. And it like, that's wonderful. Um, and I hope that she's getting paid by the school district too. Yes, that is her job. I mean, this is her job. Yeah, right now. Okay. That's her job. All right. So she's basically an employee of the school district then. Yes, exactly. Yeah, okay. I love the sort of philosophical approach that you're you're taking to this and really crafting a whole life that's in in balance in all of the different ways that we need our 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 lives to be. Take us back to this idea of trading assets for money rather than time for money. I think that that's really fascinating and I and I know um that that's something that that obviously you're developing some coursework around to help help uh -huh. teachers understand how to do that. Can you give us a high level view overview of, of what a course um, around being a pivoting musician or around using your, exchanging your assets for money might touch on? 
Yeah. So it, the big idea here is you you want to be that business owner and be able to leverage your time and not just use your time like an employee. Even when you're self-employee employed, you're still trading time for money. So like I had mentioned earlier, assets include things that are replicable and not bound by time. And the more that you can create these and use these, it, it, frees you up for other work and it frees you up to serve other people in new and interesting ways. And the way you go about creating those assets is by looking at who are you serving? Who is your audience? And then what are they looking for? What do they need? Uh, it's, that's the fundamental premise of how a business operates is they, they look at the marketplace and they find solutions. People are either running away from fear, right? Whatever they don't want, or they're pursuing a dream. And so you, as the business owner, the music business owner, and a lot of our listeners today are teachers, are fulfilling the same thing. I mean, who is the real audience for a music teacher? Especially when you come to little kids. It's not the kids, right? Because who's making the buying decision? It's the parents. And so what you want to do in your marketing and as you are attracting clients and as you're talking to people is you want to help the parents fulfill whatever their goals and dreams are for themselves, for their family and for their children. And the better you can paint that vision of I can help your child in this way because I know that you're looking for this, then the more engaged they're going to be with what you're doing. And then as you create maybe your own a web-based course, or you create your own book of etudes or a specific um, method, whatever you do in your teaching studio, and you can record that, and then you can sell it. That recording now is your asset. And it really only works if you're solving a problem for somebody. And I see a lot of musicians, they get all blue sky, and they think, oh, well, I'm going to talk about, I don't know what, uh, harmonicas and I'm going to sell this course and like, okay, well, who wants to buy it? <laughs> no one, but I taught, okay, let me make a more concrete example. As a guitar player, I taught mostly guitar lessons. And when I last had a studio, when I was teaching, which was about five or six years ago, uh, I had a lot of older students. These would be, um, men nearing or in retirement age. And these were people who, when they were young, when they were teenagers, they were watching the Beatles on Ed Sullivan and they wanted to be rock and roll stars. And for whatever reason in their life story, they never got to do it. And so I'm helping them fulfill their dreams. So I would teach them their favorite rock and roll songs, right? Or we put together another colleague and I put together a, um, kind of school of rock camp for the summer that attracted teenagers, but also old people because they never got to be in that rock and roll band. We were helping them fulfill their dream. And right now, if you go, if you're paying attention to the ads that show up on your social media, um, I, I'm not really big on social media at the moment, but when I do, I see a lot of guitar ads, right? And what are they saying? They're saying you can, you can be good at this too. 
they're helping fulfill the dream and they're selling that asset, that pre-recorded course or the book or the latest gadget. (laughs) But that I'm trying to answer your question about thinking as creating assets. And as a composer, this is what I do. All my pieces are assets. I am paid to write it, which is the commission. That's time for money. But now I have this thing written. What am I going to do? So I can sell the score. I can sell a recording like a CD, or I can license the recording either for media or streaming. And like there's five or six other ways I can take this one product and generate income from it. One of the other things I do is I come in as a guest teacher. So I'll say to a band director, it's like, okay, I know that you want to achieve these goals with your students. And uh, there are national and state standards about teaching composition and creativity in your classroom. Well, I've created this workbook about how we can teach your students how to write melodies. So let's come in. I'll workshop with your kids. We can also work on my piece and we'll have a concert and we'll just do this huge engagement piece. And that's how I'm also creating new content. Every time I do something, I create something new and I'm using that content to create new opportunities for myself, which allows me to engage with even more people and help other people get what they want. I love it. Have you written any string quartets by any chance? Because I have, but I haven't have? spent a lot of time with them. Well, I uh, just, my kids, my kids are in a string quartet class at school and I actually have this dream. I have this senior, um, who's, you know, her, so her time in this class is over, but I also have an upcoming freshman and I have this dream of having their quartet work with a living composer. Because, oh, for real? Yeah. Wow. But well, but as you're saying, I mean, you know, that, that experience of, of, I would pay for that as a parent of the school, sure. I would say, Hey, can I sponsor the opportunity to, to have a living composer come work with my, my high schooler and my high school kids mm-hmm. quartet, you know, that, and you've already written the, the piece or a composer has already written the piece. And there's sort of that, um, that value in having that, that personal connection with a living composer, which, you know, for kids who are, are, are studying any sort of classical tradition, that's, that's, uh, well, you know, not something they get to do. So that's interesting. Yeah. I never really, um, thought of that as something that I, as a parent would totally, I mean, drop of a hat, be willing to, to pay for very, that's very oh, clever. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the way I'm thinking about everything I'm doing is audience engagement mm-hmm. and, I keep saying it, but helping them get what they want. Well, and that's the way any good business person does think, right? It's the job to be done by the product. What is this job doing in the hearts and minds of the target customer? And you're just, you're overlaying that framework onto the business industry, which is really interesting. Um, Tell me a little bit about how you perceive teachers being able to distribute these assets. So are we still in a place where teachers have to... um, be responsible for their own distribution of their assets or are there, are there places that you know of that are good for teachers to go to help them distribute their assets? Yeah, I think uh, it could go either way. So let's say you create a course. Let's just talk about courses right now. You could put it on a platform for courses, a place like Udemy, right? And Udemy has a lot of traffic And that will allow you to get in front of a lot of people and you might have a high volume of sales, but you don't control the pricing as much and they're going to take a pretty significant cut. 
So in order to make a lot of money, you have to have a, a, an enormous amount of purchases. You can also host the course yourself. Uh, you, I mean, I know people who have just recorded videos and put it uh, on Vimeo. And then they kind of create their own private paywall. And if someone pays them money, either through Venmo or PayPal, then they send a private link out. I mean, that's the easiest way to do it. And then you're not really... There's not a lot of overhead for the course. You can also use platforms like ClickFunnels or Kartra to create your own membership sites. And then uh, that's like $100 a month in this platform subscription, which is really powerful, which also allows you to do your customer management and emailing and a whole bunch of other things. So when you're talking about hosting your assets, I think you have to look at what your interest level is in maintaining it and then selling it. If you want to just do the easiest thing possible and then be as hands-off as possible, put it on a platform like Udemy. Or you have to manage it yourself, which includes setting up payment processors and you're more in charge of the marketing because if no one knows it exists, they can't come by it. But if you put it on Udemy, Udemy does a good job of promoting their courses too. So that those are two ways to think about where you can put your your courses. I've done things as even creating uh, an email sequence where uh, as a lead generator, you can create a small little video course to get people into your studio and to get to know you a little bit, right? Because people do business with whom they like, they know, and they trust. So you could just have these videos as unlisted on YouTube, which would be 100% free. And then every day or whatever it is in your sequence, send out the link to the unlisted video. And that's one way for you to create engagement or some side of course. There are problems with that, right? Because we can't control what the YouTube page looks like and the play next videos. So there are solutions at every price point with payoffs and risks either way. Love it. Well, one of the things that I've been doing in the last couple of years is building an online music business summit. So it's called the Ultimate Music Business Summit. And yes, I feel like and I will mention, yeah, I'll mention that Duet participated as a sponsor this year, and it was a fantastic experience. So thank you so much for having us and for hosting this. Well, we couldn't have done it without your partnership, without Duet coming along and and helping, uh, because. It, we, every year we're getting bigger and better and we need the partners like yourself to pull it off. So thank you. Um, but this is a online training event that happens every January. And what I want to do for your listeners is give them access to the presentation I gave this year. So it's called creating multiple streams of income and it's all about thinking as what you're doing is creating assets because in order to create multiple streams of income, you have to use your time. Well, so if you go to the portfoliocomposer.com, which is my podcast website slash duet. So the portfoliocomposer.com slash duet, you'll have a chance to put in your email address and name, and then you can watch the video for free. No strings attached. Thank you so much, Garrett. It's been wonderful to learn more about you and your your unique way of looking at um, music teaching as a business. So as we close, would you tell me who was one of the most influential music teachers in your life and what made them special? Yeah. Well, I am going, I already spoke with him about him a little bit and his name is David Dillon and he was the 
man who taught me guitar first. And um, I was a very impressionable middle schooler, as most middle schoolers are. And he came alongside me and first of all, taught me how to play at a high level on my instrument, encouraged me to try new things and to push myself beyond where I thought I was capable. And that is both a skill thing and a performance thing, because he would put me in situations in live performance that I felt completely over my head. But because I knew he believed in me, I was able to to figure it out. And sometimes we have to push our students into the deep end a little bit. It's like, I know you can swim. You don't believe in yourself yet, but you can do it. And he did that. He taught me how to play the blues. And that might sound weird, but I realize now how important those lessons were because it's one of the most important American vernacular styles. And it is the root of all of rock and roll. And I love rock and roll. Um, it's an incredible, versatile genre. And more than that, he became a mentor. So he, this wasn't just about music. It was about, because this was wrapped up with my church life, it was about my spiritual life too. And um, we have maintained a relationship, oh my gosh, for 25 plus years at this point. I just saw him last Christmas. Uh, so it, it was, it's been great. To learn more about how Duet can be your digital partner in managing your music studio, visit duetpartner.com. And don't forget to rate this podcast on Apple and Spotify. We give monthly prizes to those who take the time to rate us on those platforms. Thanks. <laughs>